0: The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc.
1: Coming up on the Money Beat Podcast, Mohamed el Arian is the author of a new book, The Only Game in Town. He is here to talk about fiscal policy, monetary policy, central banks, and what they need to do to avoid another financial catastrophe.
2: This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Everything you need to know about money and the markets, and then some.
1: Welcome to part two of our special interview with Mohammed El-Aryan, author of the new book, The Only Game in Town. Talk a little bit about the central banks and a little bit about the current events. In the last segment, Mohammed, we just started getting to what I think is probably the the, the the central most important party point of your whole book is that we're reaching this T-juncture where we're going to go one way or the other. And one of the things that really struck me, and you know, look, I know you don't know me, but I'm pretty much a cynic, so Grocer knows me very well. Uh, in in reading your book, is so you have a divergence. We talked about it a second ago, about between the central banks, right, the Fed and and the ECB, the Bank of Japan, the People's Bank. The other divergence is between what the central banks are doing and are trying to do, and what governments have not been able to do, and this is where my, my the cynic in me comes up in, you talk a lot about things that can be done and that should be done on the side of fiscal policy, governments. I, I just I have such a hard time believing that any of these guys are going to get their acts together to do any of these things, and that's what I find very concerning, is that we're at a point where we need governments to really step up, and I just I don't see... It, I don't see where I should have any faith that that's going to happen. Uh, so please restore some faith in me. So I understand
0: why you're so skeptical, right? Um, so let me try and explain why I, who I'm a warrior by nature, right? Okay,
1: so good. Then we're on the same boat.
0: To come up just with one conclusion and not a favorable one. Yeah. But I'm not there for two primary reasons. The first is this is not an engineering problem. There's actually an enormous amount of agreement on what we need out of the political system. And it, it basically is a set of policies that will unleash the cash that's on the balance sheet of companies into productive investments. Right. And most, most economists agree on the four things that we need. So the first thing, the reason why I'm not completely negative is that this is not an engineering problem. This is simply an implementation issue. The second element is that it doesn't take that much from Congress in order to get the private sector to do quite a bit of the heavy lifting. And the private sector is in a position to do the heavy lifting. This is not a situation where companies are completely offside on their balance sheets. Mm-hmm. Households have actually improved their situation quite a bit. We have some really exciting innovations going on that so far have been firm-specific and sector-specific, and they're about to go economy-wide. So it doesn't actually take that much from Congress in order to engage the private sector and to get the private sector to do the heavy lifting. So when I look at these issues, yes, like you, I'm skeptical. But, but the possibility is clearly there. And, and it's really important to, to raise awareness that we can control our own destiny. And if we don't, we're going to end up in a rather difficult situation that's going to not only affect current circumstances, but also undermine future ones.
1: Well, how, let me ask you, how do, as an individual, I mean, look, you are an extremely influential individual. Uh, Gross and I are not particularly influential, but the, the publication, our organ that we work for is influential. But for most people out there, they're just individual average people. You know, you say that we have a choice in this. If you're a person out there, what do you do to help uh, to help uh, to send us on the virtuous path?
0: So that's the second element of the book that's a little bit strange, coming from from someone like me, which is that I rec- I say this is what should happen, but also we have to acknowledge that what may happen is going to be less good. So what can we as individuals do? Mm-hmm. And this speaks to something really important. We are not very good at making good decisions when facing a T-junction. There is a lot of science that shows that when you confront an individual with a bimodal distribution, three out of four times they will make the wrong decision, and for really understandable reasons. Either they have a blind spot, they simply don't see the bimodal distribution, they believe that the road they're on will continue forever. or Alternatively, they reframe it into something they understand. Or worse of all, and a lot of companies that were very successful once fell into this trap, they end up with active inertia. They realize they have to do something different, but institutionally they're simply not able to. Mm -hmm. So the book speaks to why it is that history is full of bad decision-making in front of bimodal distribution. And then... Speaks to what we need to make better decisions.
1: You, you, you're not making me feel better.
0: <laughs> so I'll <laughs> give you an example, okay, okay. For, for, for investors, for example. Yes. If you're facing a normal distribution, if the road you're on continues, then the conventional wisdom about asset allocation makes sense. A diversified portfolio mitigates risk, correlations are predictable, and cash is a wasted asset. If, however, you're facing a bimodal distribution, then correlations break down, diversification is no longer sufficient. It's necessary, but it's no longer sufficient as a risk mitigator, and cash belongs as part of your asset allocation in a strategic sense. That is turning conventional wisdom on its head. Okay. Now, if individuals start realizing why that's important, they'll realize that they need the resilience to manage the volatility, and they need the optionality to change their mind, and only cash gives you that. So the book goes through the consequences of difficult decision-making under this unusual uncertainty, to use Chairman Bernanke's phrase. And we as individuals can do. We cannot change the course of government policies. We can try and influence it, but we cannot change it. But there's a lot that we can do at the individual level to make sure that we can better navigate this T junction.
2: I was well, no, you, I was just oh, going to yeah. say yeah, go. I was going to just sort of also move you know a little bit toward, you know, um, just today's you know what's going sure, on yeah, in yeah. today's markets before we. Well,
1: wrap you know, this and up. I, I, that's a good idea, and I think it's interesting because, you know, I, I sense, and I think a lot of people, you probably sense, a lot of people sense it. The, the Fed wants to hand off. The, the reins they want someone else they want they, they keep using the word normalization. They want to normalize rates. they don't want to be in the position they're in but that handoff is so difficult. Well, I, and you look at what the, the ECB, the bank of the bank of Japan, they are doubling down on policy because there's it's like they're standing on the track with the baton in their hands and they're looking for someone to give it to and there is no one to give it to. How hard is it for the central banks to do what you're talking about doing? Then they may have no choice. So, so you mentioned Japan.
0: hmm Okay. Japan surprised everybody by going negative right. on its policy right. rates. That is combined with quite a large QE there. The reason, the primary reason why they're doing this is to weaken the currency. Right. However, the currency has strengthened by over 5% mm-hmm. since the beginning of the month. Yeah. The month, right. The month. The month. Yeah. So basically, the currency market is telling the Bank of Japan, you're no longer effective. Mm-hmm. What has happened in Japan is fascinating because for quite a while now, the currency market was willing to trade off monetary policy differentials. So to the extent that the Bank of Japan was looser than the Fed, the bank, the, the currency would weaken. Suddenly, because the effectiveness of the Bank of Japan is in question, the 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 currency market is now looking at fundamentals and guess what? Yes, Japan is not growing very rapidly, but it has a massive positive investment position vis a vis the rest of the world. It can repatriate quite a bit of capital and it has a pretty good current account. So suddenly the yen strengthens, even though the Bank of Japan has gone to extraordinary has taken extraordinary measures to weaken it. That tells you that there's an effectiveness issue, not just a willingness issue, when it comes to central banks.
1: Right, right, and it's it's amazing to watch. You can all. It's amazing to watch the money flows right now, because they are just they're going in so many different directions. Like like you said, Japan wants a weaker yen; they're getting a stronger one. Uh, you know, the the U.S. China. Or China, oh China, especially China. Right. I mean, people are moving money, and look, we have we have markets that are hyper kinetic now. I mean they are they trade in nanoseconds. Millions billions of dollars flow around immediately. Uh, I it, it do you think that that the central banks are actually that they're going to need at some point to have a sort of almost a plaza accord where they're going to have to sit down and come together and figure out how to coordinate any kind of move that they want to make? So,
0: one of the four elements we need we desperately need is better global policy coordination. Mm-hmm. Think, think of an orchestra. You have the different section of the orchestra playing not only with different music, but there's no conductor, right? Well, right. because we're so interconnected, because we're so interdependent, we are an orchestra at the global level, but, but we're not coordinated. So one of the four things we need is coordination, not just of monetary policy, but of, 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 of economic policies, but we also need a few, few other things. First, we need to invest in real engines of growth. We overinvested in finance right, as an right. engine of growth. We didn't realize that there was a reason why it was called the financial service industry yeah. because it served the economy. <laughs> it didn't drive the real economy. Yeah. And now we have to go back to the fundamental drivers of growth. That's number one. Second, we need to match better the willingness and the ability to spend. Third, we need to deal with these excessive pockets of over-indebtedness because not only do they crush the debtor, but they stop new capital from coming in. They stop new capital from engaging. No new oxygen comes into the system. Right. Now, these are all measures that most economists agree on and that, and that Congress can help resolve. Um, and that's the irony, is that we do need both domestic and global policy measures, and I go back to it's not an engineering problem.
2: No, I, I, I like you when you say, when you're, you're sort of talk about the lack of coordination with the central banks, and you, I really feel like you saw that at the end of last year. You had Draghi after earlier in the fall... Sort of you know, suggesting that they would increase their, you know, their uh, QE. Heavily started, suggesting, yeah. And then in December, not delivering on that. Right. And then the next week, you had um, the, the Fed uh, upping rates. And then you also had in that time, and it was not, you know, I don't think it was many people paid attention to this or of the general public. But China saying they wouldn't do stimulus. And I think a lot of people, sort of, you know, uh, you know, in our newsroom, have talked about, you know, sort of those sequence of events, sort of playing a big role in this sell-off that started at the beginning of the year, because you know, that was one of the questions: is why did this happen? You know, we get back from the Christmas break, and all of a sudden the markets are in turmoil.
0: Yeah, and 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 the title of the book I should say, and I, and I, I say I, I say this about the book: the only game in town yeah. is not my phrase. I was sitting at a central bank conference in France in November of 2014. And the then governor of the French central bank, Christian Noyer, welcomed everybody. And then he said, and I'm paraphrasing here, that people in this room, central banks, have become the only game in town, and we don't like it. Yeah. Okay. We don't like it because we know ultimately that we cannot deliver sustainable, good economic outcomes. We simply don't have the tools. And we don't like being the only game in town. So if central banks perceive an opportunity to exit this paradigm, they will. Hmm. Um, and you see them torn between the desire to exit and then concerns that by exiting, they become part of the problem.
1: Right. Let, let, let's take one more break, Grocer. Hold okay. that question. And we'll, we'll come back on the other side of this short, short break with Mohammed El-Aryan. This is Jason Gay, sports writer at the Wall Street Journal, and I have a podcast called Free For All. And guess what? It's not just sports. We'll also talk about some real estate, some music, some culture, some fashion. I could talk about fashion. It's the Free For All. Become a subscriber on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at WSJ Podcasts. And check us out at WSJ.com slash podcasts.
2: WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously now. Money beat.
1: Welcome back. We're here with Mohammed El and The book is the only game in town. Central bank's instability and avoiding the next collapse. And sometimes I think the next collapse is, is a couple of minutes away. But you know, I digress. Uh, G- grocer you had a question. You had a burning question before well, the break. There,
2: it, it just it, it comes down to like the question. I think that's in the markets we've heard all year since the, you know the the sort of started selling off that you know the U.S. wasn't in danger of a recession. The U.S. is not in mm-hmm. danger of a recession. But it seems like, you know, more and more people are sort of getting worried about that. What's your view on, you know, the health of the sort of U.S. economy?
0: Um, So, so far, the disruptions have been limited to the financial sector. There's very little evidence that there's been spillover onto the real economy. Mm-hmm. And, and that's an issue that is comforting, but also it's a major risk element. Yeah. In fact, the major call for the U.S. economy is, can it continue to heal given headwinds not just from financial volatility, but also headwinds from weaker international growth?
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: It, the last employment report was encouraging. Why? Because wages went up. On the, on the back of two things, higher hourly earnings and more hours worked. And that's important because ultimately consumption is still a very important part of GDP. So if wages continue to recover, the sense of financial insecurity will not necessarily translate into economic insecurity. If, however, wages do not continue to recover, Then there is a risk that what is now limited and contained to the financial sector spills over onto the real economy. And if that happens, it will spill back to the financial sector, right? And then you get this vicious cycle. So that's a really important question, and it's something that has to be monitored very carefully.
1: Hey, Mohammed. there's a lot of anxiety in the markets right now about the banks, banks in, 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 in China, in Japan, in Europe, not so much concern about the banks here, but the stocks are certainly getting hit. What do, you, what do you make of all that right now? Do you think that there is a concern about the banking sector? So if you're a bank,
0: you're in the midst of the perfect storm, you know, three things coming together. Right. Um, first, there's an issue of credit quality especially if you have lent to the commodity sector, which quite a few banks have, especially abroad, have lent to the commodity sector. So first you have the gold old fashioned problem of credit quality. Second, you have an earning issue because the yield curve, not only are yields coming down, but the curve is inverting. The curve is flattening, I'm sorry. And as it flattens, your ability to generate earnings reduces. So you have an earnings issue. Thirdly, you're dealing with a new regulatory regime that has told your holders of the lower parts of your capital structure, equities and certain hybrid, that they no longer will be protected. Mm -hmm. So the minute that there's concerns about credit quality and earnings, it's amplified because you no longer have a safety net that was perceived to be there beforehand. Put these three things together and you start getting very sharp moves in in banks. Now, the good news is that the market is still differentiating. The U.S. banks haven't been hurt anywhere near the European banks. And even within Europe, there's been quite a bit of differentiation. If If you were to compare the credit default swaps of a bank like UBS relative to Deutsche Bank, the UBS credit default swap... Is one-third the level of Deutsche Bank. Right. So, so, so markets are still differentiating, and that's good news because the, lo- the last thing we can afford right now is for the banking sector to join what I call the three unhinged segments, which are energy, high yield, and emerging market currency. We cannot afford, hmm. um, as a global economy, to have the banks join that set of unhinged markets.
2: How close are we to, the, do you think, that happening?
0: I don't think we're as close as some of the market pricing suggests. Right. Um, I think banks are actually a lot stronger, especially in the, in the United States. A lot has been done to clean up the banks. I also don't think that this is a wait when the payments and settlement system is in doubt. Right. Um, you know, you, the ATM story speaks to the payments and settlement system, that people no longer, the banks no longer trusted each other. I don't think we're anywhere near that, so I'm I'm not as alarmed as some of the market pricing would suggest I should be, but I am keeping it under close review.
1: Because
2: yeah. like Deutsche Bank definitely seems like you know they have a capital problem. It is it's not acute per se, but it is you know it's more like a long term. Mm-hmm. And and part of their problem is they've had rosy assumptions on you know their sort of the amount of money they're going to earn. Um, and they and they run, running also into, you know, capital requirements of where they're probably going to have to raise capital in the U.S. as well for their U.S. business. Yeah, and uh, the next couple of years. But one of the one of the questions we wanted to finally, I mean, one of the last questions we want to finally get to is just Janet Yellen goes to uh, Capitol Hill um, this week. What is she? I mean. She's in a tough situation in terms of, you know, everyone wants to hear that the Fed's not raising rates or it seems like the market generally wants that. But on the other hand, she's not going to probably deliver that. And also, if she does deliver that, how much does that also then spook the market into thinking the economy is in a much worse place than they had thought?
0: So, So let me tell you, in a perfect world, what she, she would deliver, and in a good world, what she would deliver. Okay. Let's start with the good world. Okay. In a good world, she would reassure markets that the U- U.S. economy is resilient enough and can deal with headwinds from abroad and headwinds from financial volatility. Second, she would reassure markets that the wage growth appears sustainable, and therefore this enormous worry about deflation is overstated. Finally, she would signal to markets that our banks are fine, that they are not vulnerable to a downturn as suggested by what has happened to the equity prices. In a good world, that is what she would do. Mm -hmm. In a perfect world, she would be the catalyst for this much-needed handoff from excessive reliance on central banks. To a much more comprehensive policy response. I don't think we're going to get to a perfect world. Right. We may get to a good world in her testimony.
1: Well, look, a good world would be pretty good at this point <laughs> right now. So well, let's hope for the good world. Especially the way the years <laughs> got it all yeah. to. Uh, Mohammed, I really want to thank you for coming in today. We appreciate it very, very much.
2: No, it's my
0: great pleasure. Thank you so
1: much for having me. Thank you. So that is Mohammed El-Aryan. The name is The Only Game in Town. It came out, landed January 26th from Random House. Everyone should uh, go out and take a flyer on it. We will see you on Friday, unless you hear from us sooner. If the markets are blowing up, you you might hear from us sooner. So if not, uh, have a good one. We'll talk to you on Friday.